Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Hear Her Sports. I'm Elizabeth Emery. This week's a good one. My guest is climber and adventure seeker, Mary Grace Stocker. Not only do we go over details from her climbing adventures, think poop tubes and vertical ecologies, we talk money. This is a lovely coincidental follow-up to last episode's money discussion with sporty Esquire Cecilia Towns. For her 13th birthday, not wanting to become a teenage girly girl, Mary Grace asked for backpacking gear and a multi-day kayak trip. And that was the start of it all. She went to college in the Southeast, moved to Denver where she worked in tech and climbed on weekends. Then after getting laid off in 2017, she built up her Honda Element and drove away to travel the country and climb. She's been traveling solo since then and encourages women to set out on their own every now and again to be introspective and remember who they are. To fund her climbing, Mary Grace is a ski instructor and is building a digital marketing business. She's done incredibly well at saving and learning how to support her adventuring while building financial stability at the same time. It's super cool that Mary Grace has combined this non-traditional sporty life with setting up for the longer term future. We talk about all of that and more, so let's get to it. But first, we rely on you spreading the word to grow the show. So pause the episode right now to text a friend who'd love a great story of adventures and financial goals and send them the link to hearhersports.com. Thanks, and here we go. Welcome, Mary Grace. It's so good to have you here on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, this conversation has been in the works for a while because you've been traveling. What have you been doing? Yeah, I. Uh, when you reached out to me, I was just making my way across the country from Yosemite to the Red River Gorge in Kentucky, and I spent two months there to climb. Uh, I had spent a little bit of time there before, but I was really curious about the area and spent two months there hanging out with friends and it was a little chilly, but uh, now I'm back in Colorado and working at Breckenridge Ski Resort as a ski instructor. So it's pretty fun. So let's backstep a little bit and maybe get into the winter with this question, but you do a ton of different things throughout the year. So could you talk about sort of giving, give us an overview of what you do during the year? Well, uh, can I backtrack to kind of when I left Denver, Colorado? Sure. Uh, so I was working at tech startups before I started traveling and I really enjoyed it, but I was always kind of obsessed with the adventuring. And so once the company that I was working at went out of business and laid everyone off on the same day, I took that as an opportunity to build out my Honda element and uh, kind of just leave. It was a little scary because I was used to kind of routine and I, I like being organized, but I also like, you know, not knowing where what's going to happen. Uh, so I last year I spent from the end of March through December, kind of the beginning of December, just traveling, exploring different rock climbing areas, mostly in the West. Uh, everything from Utah, Yosemite, uh, Smith Rock. I climbed Mount Rainier with some friends. Uh, went to Leavenworth and Index and Squamish and the Bugaboos and Tensleep and just all these beautiful places that are uh, well known by climbers. And then I kind of finished my season uh, last year traveling by spending a month in Indian Creek, Utah, and was a little scared. I was trying to build a freelance business at the time and, uh, had gotten one client 
And then I was like, I, I'm not quite sure if this is going to sustain me. I had lived pretty cheaply, but I was coming to kind of an end of what I had allotted myself. And so then I, my parents, I'm kind of blessed. They have a condo in Breckenridge. So last year I spent December hanging out their condo, kind of working, starting this freelance thing and uh, then got a ski instructor position and then lived in the employee housing last year. So I worked really hard, loved ski instructing and got to meet a lot of amazing families and saved a pretty large percentage of my income last year and managed to use that as a Kickstarter to travel again this year, but a little bit less places because uh, gas is pretty expensive and managed to also come out with a lot more money than I expected uh, for this season. So now I could uh, focus on saving again and building, keep building that uh, uh, financial state as well. But this year I uh, spent five months in Yosemite as a climber steward and that was an amazing opportunity to work with the climbing rangers in the park and educate uh, visitors on the history of rock climbing and kind of the beautiful unknowns of climbing these big walls in Yosemite. Mm-hmm. And then uh, spent two months in the Red River Gorge climbing. And that was kind of my own personal free time. Uh, but I had a lot of fun getting to know people in a new area. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of that's what I've been up to the past almost two years, right. but it's been, it's been fun. I, you never know what's going to happen, but, uh, I kind of have, you know, meandered my way to understand what I'm doing. <laughs> do you think of your life, uh, seasonally, or do you think of it all as a way to fund the climbing? You know, I mean, it's easy to talk to people who have a regular nine to five because, you know, it's a structure we understand. So I guess I'm trying to understand you know, how you view your structure of what you're doing. Yeah. Last year, uh, with the ski instructing, I, I absolutely loved it, but I viewed it as an avenue to climb more as a way to kind of save money, work really hard, get to, I learned a lot. I actually really liked the job because there's a lot of training opportunities, uh, both kind of the actual ski training as well as understanding how to work with clients and motivate them to change and become better skiers, which can, you know, translate to other businesses in life one day for myself, hopefully. Um, but the right now, I guess I still view it as seasonally, but uh, this year I'm a little bit, um, I'm not quite sure where I'll end up this coming summer. I still want to climb, but I'm, I kind of mentioned in the email to you, I have been trying to focus on ways to build some passive income so I don't have to worry about always picking up a seasonal job and kind of making my money work for me <laughs> uh, so I don't have to be worried about it as much. Yeah, what what are some of those passive ways you're working on? Uh, so I've been doing a lot of research on just investing and real estate mm-hmm. and um, doing, I haven't, I I invest, I have, you know, not very much, but like a retirement account and then an own personal investing account. And that's fun for me. And I've been learning more about that as well as getting into just reading about either rental properties or other avenues of some passive income for cash flow, I guess. Mm-hmm. So. You mentioned the history of climbing, and that was part of your job as a climbing steward at, in Yosemite. 
do you feel part of that history? Because it's it always seems very male to me, and I'm just wondering like what you draw from. And I know from an essay that you wrote, you did mention Beverly Johnson. Yeah. So are the women climbers from history really important, or are you also drawing from the history as a whole? I think me personally, I am drawn to the history of women in Yosemite, but I also love the history overall. One of my favorite books I read this summer was a book by Glenn Denny called Valley Walls, and it's kind of small excerpts about stories from kind of the golden years in Yosemite with the climbing. So that inspires me because they put up all these amazing first ascents, um, as well as uh, I had the privilege to, while I was in Yosemite, go to the Jim Bridwell Memorial. He passed away, I, I believe, earlier or last winter. And it was really amazing. I got to um, all these like uh, kind of the eras in the climbing in Yosemite were the golden years and the stone masters and the, the stone monkeys. And so Jim Bridwell was more of the between like the stone masters and stone monkeys. And at the memorial, all these amazing people came and you just look around and see all these names who put up these first ascents that you dream of doing. So it's it's a pretty inspiring place. I do see myself in it, although a very small part. You know, I'm not doing any major accomplishments. I'm just doing my own small things to um, mostly inspired by what people had done before me. Are there women that are part of those stone masters and stone monkeys time periods and we're just not hearing them or they just weren't really there to climbing? There were, there were definitely a lot. Uh, uh, of course, Lynn Hill, right. uh, she did the first free ascent in the nose, which wasn't repeated until I, I believe like 10 years later when Tommy Caldwell and Beth uh, Rodden did the second and third first free ascents of the nose. And, uh, and then other notable people were Beverly Johnson and Sabella Hetchell, who uh, they did the first all-female ascent of El Capitan in, I forgot the year, but they did the triple direct route. And then Beverly Johnson was the first female to uh, solo or aid solo El Capitan on the route called the dihedral wall. So kind of understanding, you know, you have to kind of dig deep into some of these articles <laughs> online. But this summer, I was really inspired by trying to find out that information. And there's lots of other women and women today that do amazing things there, too. Uh, but yeah, it is definitely, you know, obviously a male dominated uh, area and like history kind of there just because of all these the kind of machismo personality types mm -hmm. often you find there. Right. And and climbing also has sort of that whole rebel attitude about it. Do you feel part of that? Um, yes and no. I, me personally, I think it's a way for me to branch out of kind of how I had structured my life before. I, I always wanted adventure, but I didn't always know how to do it on my own. And I've always been focused on trying to build that experience. And when I was younger, I was kind of more of the perfectionist type in school and, you know, the library kid in college. And uh, so it's my chance to branch out into the unknown world of, you know, not knowing who I'm going to climb with the next day, which is, you know, now I really love it. It was a little scary at first when I started to travel on my own. 
Yeah, you talked about when you were younger, not being so adventurous. And yet, when you were 13, you describe for your birthday, you wanted climbing gear. <laughs> yeah, well, I wanted uh, some backpacking and a kayak trip. My dad and I uh, went on like a, a few day pack kayaking trip for my 13th birthday. So <laughs> I was always kind of inspired by these other women who I looked up to kind of one of my cousins who got to do all these adventurous things. And then I still keep up with one of my snowboard instructors when I was a kid and this ropes course instructor. So I always had these female kind of mentors in my life who are probably like 10 to 15 years older than me. <laughs> uh, and I was like, I want to do that one day. And so it was kind of a slow path to deciding to do that on my own. But uh, I'm really glad I took that first step to leave Denver and feel okay with traveling and, you know, taking that unknown step to whatever may happen. I'm, I'm still in that phase too. I love what I'm doing, but it's, you know, you don't quite know. Uh, I have goals for myself that keep me my own personality type, like happy with kind of what I'm doing. I like setting seasonal goals, I guess, and then kind of somewhat long-term goals. I was recently thinking about, oh man, what do I want to accomplish by 30? But We'll see. <laughs> what are your seasonal goals and long-term goals? Um, this year, I wanted to, um, uh, well, in Yosemite, I wanted to do a wall by myself and then a wall with other girls because I saw the importance of climbing with other women, especially kind of multi-day adventures with other women. And also on my own to kind of feel that empowerment that I could do something on my, by myself and also kind of push my own limits of climbing and work on kind of that fear of, uh, cause climbing can be scary <laughs> and trying to manage the fear of, uh, falling or pushing myself to more difficult climbs. And then in the Red River Gorge, it was kind of, it's sport climbing and some trad climbing, but I mostly sport climbed and it's a little bit for me, less, um, fear focused. It was more of building a base of kind of climbing grade ranges, I guess. And then for Breckenridge, I, my goal is kind of learning how to build this, a private client business. And I really love building the relationships with the kids I teach and the families uh, last year, I worked really hard to kind of encourage families to come back and uh, request me for private lessons. So this year, I'm kind of working on that and hoping that it can translate into other years in the future. So, Yeah, you've talked a lot about fear so far. And in your essay, again, that I mentioned earlier, The Women Venturing into the Unknown, you write about getting past that fear. So, you know, maybe talk a little bit more about that. And how do you manage getting past the fear? Because climbing is scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have learned in whether it's work or kind of outdoor adventures that fear is okay and failure is okay because it means that we're learning. And it's this summer I really learned that it didn't really matter about what achievements I could accomplish, but the process to uh, get to accomplishing what I wanted to, or maybe I didn't get there or I went past it, but it was more, I tried to turn my brain more on the process 
of learning rather than just focusing on what I wanted to do. And that helped me a lot because then I can embrace um, those learning moments and be okay with uh, either the fear of being by myself or the fear of not thinking I could do it at all uh, or that fear of falling, which is kind of inevitable with climbing. You kind of just have to uh, work through it and uh, either you know, start small and make baby steps or kind of just like push yourself to not worry about it. So yeah, it's, it, it's been fun. I'm still working on it and it's, it's cool to have that realization and, uh, kind of encourage people to accept that as well. Cause I think a lot of people are scared of failing. Yeah. Do you teach when you're teaching skiing? Do you teach sort of lessons like that as well? Yeah, I had the privilege of teaching this 11-year-old girl this past week and for about five days, and just her and I. And she was always really hard on herself for not performing what she wanted to do on some of these bump runs we were working on. And I, I got to kind of instill my passion for understanding the process and helped her understand that it's not about, you know, being frustrated that we're failing, but viewing that as a good thing rather than a bad thing. So it was cool. And she really understood that and got to share that with her family. And she got to text me last night saying that my family loved, I wrote a little like post on my ski instructor Facebook page about that experience. And she read it out loud to her family and they're all really encouraged and inspired by that. So it's fun to be able to share kind of your experiences and how it translates to lots of different areas of life. Do you have lessons that you want to pass along to other women, climbers, skiers? Don't be scared of doing something you don't know if you can't do. (laughs) I don't know if that's the right way of wording it, but I was scared of leaving Denver and living in my car. And then I did it and things work out, even if you don't know what's going to happen. And then I last minute decided to aid solo this big wall in Yosemite. It was not very terribly difficult or long, but I decided to do it without knowing if I could do it or not. And you just work slowly to, you know, as Beverly Johnson said in her book that she was approaching this, her first solo of El Cap as like eating an elephant one bite at a time and, you know, not being worried about eating the entire elephant at once. (laughs) Can you... So this is a question I have a lot, and I, I don't know, I don't know if there's an answer. But can you describe what it is that you know your thought process when, you, for example, you're thinking about doing Skull Queen? Like, what is your thought process of making the decision to do it, come hell or high water, basically? Yeah. Well, sometimes if I plan things that are somewhat pretty scary, I guess, ahead of time, it makes me get really like my stomach hurts and I just like not sure if I can do it. (laughs) So I actually, and things that are really challenging for me and that I would like to do, I kind of like deciding last minute if possible. And I had the, the opportunity in Yosemite because I was there and I had, you know, days off at a time. And then I just was like, Actually, I I had planned to do it with a guy, uh, and then he backed out at the last minute, and I was like, well, I'm packed, 
So I'm, I'm going. <laughs> and I had chat, I, you know, I had chatted with some female friends who worked on uh, Yosemite Search and Rescue because they had soloed some walls before and I really looked up to them and wanted to learn as well. So I had asked them for tips uh, beforehand and I actually did go to the star site and borrow gear to add to my uh, collection of gear for the wall because I didn't have everything I needed. So I, I didn't just like pick up and go and, you know, a lot of friends were supporting me and encouraging me as I was deciding kind of the day before. And as I was walking up there, a a friend helped me carry stuff too. So, you know, for me, it's, uh, I kind of, with those type of things, I definitely like last minute because then I don't get as uh, nervous beforehand. (laughs) I don't have time to think. I just (laughs) like that. Yeah. So what was it like climbing that? Well, I I had expectations of myself that I didn't meet the first day. And so that was funny. I made a lot of mistakes. The difference between climbing, so like free climbing is with a rope and you're using kind of your own strength to make upward progress on the wall. And free soloing is where you don't have any ropes or equipment with you other than like your shoes and chalk bags. So I wasn't doing that. Uh, I was mixing aid climbing and free climbing. So aid climbing is using um, gear to basically pull on the gear that you put into the cracks and use like a nylon ladder and like daisy chains to attach yourself and like make, you know, basically stepping up a ladder. Um, It's more creativity and engineering rather than your own physical strength. Aid soloing, you lead a pitch. You set up a belay at the bottom and you put yourself on belay with a, um, I used a Grigri, and then you place gear as you go and clip the rope into it. So you are protected if you fall and you make your way up to the next anchor. And this particular route is a trade route. So it's done, you know, fairly often, not as often as others, but it does have bolted anchors so I knew where I was going and uh, I knew the route and they have topos for that. And so I set up my belay and then set up my hauling system. And then you rappel down uh, and release your haul bag. And then you jug or ascend the lead line up to remove all the gear that you had placed while leading the pitch. And then you get to the top of the belay again and then you haul your bag up, which includes your food and water and my portal edge that I slept in and your, you know, sleeping equipment and, you know, any other things that you have. And then you stack your ropes really organized because if you don't, uh, you are going to be <laughs> having a really difficult time because uh, the ropes can get tangled very easily if you're not there to attend them. And then you start up the next pitch. So I did make some mistakes, not bad ones, but, you know, the ropes got tangled on like pitch two and uh all these other things and I was really exhausted by the time I got to this one ledge called dinner ledge on pitch three and so I did make a camp there that night and it was the only big ledge left on the route so I was I was happy to have a ledge to sleep on and walk around and you don't it's big enough where you don't have to uh be attached to your anchor as I continued on the next few days the second night I was super discouraged and felt Uh, Like I wanted to come down because I was going slower and, you know, felt kind of incompetent. Like I knew how to do it, but I was like, you know, struggling with trying to figure it out. I didn't really 
practice beforehand. So I like just figuring it out while doing it, which makes it difficult. And then uh, the next morning, I I had brought Beverly Johnson's biography with me because I knew that she had inspired me to push myself on my own adventures like she had before. And so I read a quote from her that I have written in my blog post. And it basically was discussing how she focused more on the process rather than the achievement and had that explorer's maxim uh, of kind of, I don't think it said venturing out into the unknown, but kind of like embracing that learning uh, rather than being kind of caught up in that ego of accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And so that really made me uh, get back into that mental state of learning rather than being you know, caught up in my own ego that I wasn't performing as well as I wanted to. And I, you know, in Yosemite, sometimes it can be difficult to um, balance your ego and the learning process because there are so many badass people who do great things there. And you can oftentimes um, compare yourself to other people. And it's difficult to set that aside and just focus on um, kind of doing one step at a time. And so I was able to do that and finish a wall, um, and I was really excited about that. And it was probably one of the coolest experiences I've had to just kind of distill all those emotions. Um, And I definitely cried and I screamed (laughs) and I laughed and I sang and it was – awesome because you get to have this wave of emotions that um help you learn a lot and I'm I'm really happy that I had that and I encourage all women to you know it doesn't have to be that particular style of doing something on your own but you know taking a day hike by yourself and you know and you can become more introspective and think about who you are as a person yeah what lessons are you going to take from that trip um, I, I think the biggest lesson is, um, that I, I struggle with a lot is just not comparing myself to other people and kind of being uh, content with who I am and my abilities and not getting to a point where I'm, you know, get too frustrated that I'm not able to, you know, improve at climbing as fast as other people or, um, you know, a variety of different things, but just continue learning and enjoying that process and being comfortable with who I am. I think that would be hard in Yosemite because there are so many climbers there and, you know, there you are on a, t- a tiny speck on the rock that everybody knows, like when you started and when you got to the top. Yeah, it is difficult, especially, uh, that was a different, that was Washington column and not as many people see that. Uh, but when you're climbing El Cap, um, you know, the climber stewards, my position, every day we set up telescopes to talk to with tourists about climbing on El Cap. And so we, we of course, point out our friends. And so if you're climbing, <laughs> you, you definitely know you have friends down there who are watching you. And they definitely are like, wow, they're going kind of slow or they're going really fast. And it's kind of that exposure. Everybody kind of can see 
what's going on on the rocks in Yosemite. So it's, you get, you, yeah, it's, it can be, it can be difficult sometimes. Right. I mean, even if somebody's not watching you, you can imagine that people are watching you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes um, when climbing on El Cap, I've only successfully climbed El Cap once and I did it with two other guy friends. I've attempted it a few other times, but um, I decided to come down for you know, various different reasons. But when we're up there, we still have fun and we can like, you know, like turn around and like wave in just in case someone sees us in the telescopes. But usually it doesn't <laughs> happen. But it's just funny. You know, you, you kind of have that you know, awareness that your friends are down there kind of, you know, cheering you on. Right. As a climbing steward, you're, I'm sure, very aware of climbing etiquette. And I mean that very specifically from climber to climber, but also in the bigger picture of taking care of the rocks. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah, especially in Yosemite, the climber stewards, we have one of our biggest educational aspects is uh, talking to people about the vertical wilderness and that we are, you know, people who are going to enjoy these rock climbs, but there are, you know, uh, vertical ecologies that are present there that we have to be conscious of, um, the rock as well as the plants and the animals. And we in Yosemite have a strong ethic of placing as little fixed gear as possible. So we use cams and, um, nuts. And if you're aid climbing, um, small pitons called beaks and, uh, there's all various types of equipment, but, uh, we educate people on, you know, being conscious of that they're in the wilderness and to be um, leave no trace. We carry out all our uh, waste in bags that are uh, made for that. And on the big walls, we have like poop tubes and put it all into that. It's in a bag and it goes into the poop tube and then you... Uh, so you don't leave anything on the wall. How do you poop? Yeah, how do you, yeah. How do you poop in the poop tube? <laughs> yeah. So we don't poop in the poop tube. There's uh, wag bags, and so when you're hanging on the wall, I like wearing tights because it's easier. You don't have to unzip, and you um, you basically pull down your tights and have the bag, and you poop in the bag, and then you you know clean up, and then you put the bag inside the poop tube, and you're done. It's it's pretty simple. It's funny at first, but it's actually really not difficult. And peeing, you can, you know, pee wherever you want. <laughs> so it sounds like something you have to learn how to do though. <laughs> yeah, it is the, my, my first experience climbing a big wall. My friend and I were given a, a poop tube and it had doggy poop bags in it. And we were like, oh, well, we should just use these. Um, and they're the ones with the tiny holes. <laughs> and so my first experience pooping in a bag was a tiny, those green, tiny doggy poop bags. And we managed to aim well, but we never used them again. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, anyway, sorry, I interrupted you about uh, cleaning up after yourself. <laughs> yeah. So well, wherever you go, there's all these leave no trace things. And it's just, uh, you know, rock climbers sometimes, um, feel like they're entitled because they, you know, the rock is there. It's meant for them to climb, but we have to be, you know, careful how we tread on it and different areas have different ethics, but Yosemite definitely has a pretty strong ethics in place because of the history and kind of, um, there's, there's a long line of history of climbing in the U S and the world. So, Yosemite is pretty intense in 
in that spectrum of things though in the U.S. for sure. And what about bolts? Do you have any opinions about adding more bolts or are there enough? Or... Um, in Yosemite, bolts are um, used to a minimum. Um, I um, personally, and I don't have a problem with sport climbing areas. I really love climbing bolted routes, but in Yosemite, since there is that history, I definitely do support placing as little bolts as possible to preserve kind of the creativity of the climb because often it's because of the first ascensionist decision. Uh, so if you add or remove bolts, it's altering kind of that creative um, act that the first ascensionist decided to do. Mm-hmm. So, but it definitely can scar the rock because you are drilling or we don't, it's all hand drills in Yosemite. We're not allowed to use um, any mechanical things. So um, it does take a lot of time. You know, it's a lot faster to use a <laughs> mechanical drill to bolt. Uh, I learned how to hand drill this summer and it takes a while. I, my first time, it was like probably 20 to 30 minutes <laughs> to put one bolt in. It's, if you put a lot of bolts in, that's not very fun. <laughs> yeah, really. That's a reason not to do it. Yeah. But it just, it's part of, you know, respecting the wilderness. Yeah. Especially in our national parks. And what about uh, slackliners? I understand that's getting more popular and so more more people are doing that, which also, you know, adds to uh, more people using limited resources. Yeah. Um, I don't slackline, but uh, we do have, we ask people to, in Yosemite, to protect the trees if they're slacklining um, or also be careful with how many bolts they do place or when they are slacklining on, um, the cliff lines across, you know, from cliff line to cliff line. Um, and it definitely does add to it. We don't have, a, um, I don't quite know, but it doesn't seem like we have too many issues. It seems like they're fairly respectful, um, in Yosemite. So, uh, have you seen the free solo movie yet? Yeah, we, uh, for, Every year in Yosemite, there's an event called uh, Yosemite Facelift, and it's a big cleanup event that lasts a week, and they sh- they premiered it, I think, or uh, maybe not premiered it, but it was shown at the event, and as well, along with the Dawn Wall movie, and they're pretty inspiring. It was cool. I, I was actually in Yosemite when Alex Honnold free soloed uh, the free rider, Wow. and that was um, two springs ago, and it was a cool experience being there and kind of feeling a part of that history. Mm-hmm. So, I I mean, I think I think it's fascinating. And I think more people doing gym climbing and stuff is really interesting. There is the counter to that of, of what I got to earlier, is that just more people doing it. And one of the things about being in the wilderness is being in the wilderness by yourself. Do you have any thoughts yeah. about sort of increased popularity and, you know, how that's going to affect the sport? I think it's really cool that uh, a lot of people learn in the gym I myself was drawn to learning outside. I did do some gym climbing um, my first uh, year to, I don't know, um, of climbing. Uh, But I was more drawn originally to kind of peak bagging, uh, climbing kind of third, fourth class routes. And then I realized, oh, well, I can climb harder routes with trad gear and go exploring in the wilderness. But I do think that kind of the history of exploring oftentimes is white dominated. And uh, I think climbing in a gym is helping it be a little bit more inclusive and diverse. And uh, especially with it coming up to be in the Olympics, I think we'll see more diversity 
as it uh, is kind of pushed by other countries, which I'm excited about personally, because I really enjoy diverse environments. And, you know, a lot of climbing places are pretty much, I climb with a lot of white people, which (laughs) is, I've, you know, there's a, a lot of events and people who are uh, encouraging uh, diversity and women in climbing like Flash Foxy or um, uh, Brown Girls Climb. And they're awesome, especially, I don't know, a lot of people are kind of starting off in gyms and going to kind of bouldering and sport climbing. And then trad climbing is, you know, slowly getting integrated with a lot more diversity too. Mm-hmm. I actually talked to Shalma Jun, and one of the things we talked about with gym climbing is it's a way for people to sort of get over the fear of climbing. So they're they're in sort of this control environment, so they can take that first step. Yeah, yeah, I think it. I think it's important. The hardest part I see, or the more um, things that are frustrating to me, are when people who are very strong, who have climbed indoors mostly, and then go to areas and kind of don't know how to treat those areas. And uh, so that's kind of where I really enjoyed my role this year in Yosemite was kind of being able to chat with people about, hey, you know, let's not leave trash by this bouldering area. You know, this isn't a gym. There's no one to pick up after you. This is the wilderness. Let's, you know, pick up after ourselves and keep this clean. And along with, you know, big walls, which are littered with, gallons of water and, you know, food people left behind and, you know, trash. And so we try to pick that up as we go as well. But it definitely can be difficult if, you know, as there are more people coming into the sport, uh, if people disregard that respect, then it can get worse for the environment for sure. So yeah, it's kind of a fine line. I'm excited about it, but I also want people to, you know, learn from mentors outside even if they aren't as strong as them to uh kind of you know gain a different kind of experience with respecting the outdoor world so we've talked about a few of the issues affecting the climbing world are there issues that we haven't talked about sort of things that you all are talking about um i'm not sure i think i i really love helping women experience adventures and feeling confident that they can go out on their own or with other women because you know a lot of people learn from um, male partners or uh, boyfriends or um, fathers or you know other male figures in their lives and uh, I I for sure I I learned from uh, climbing from a boyfriend and it inspired me but I have focused now on finding women who I can kind of share some of my experiences with. Like the wall I did this summer was on Leaning Tower and I took two girlfriends and it was their first big wall. And it was amazing because we all got to hang out and I got to, you know, I'm pretty much you know, an amateur at at it as well, but I had done a few more than them. It was their first and I got to share some knowledge with them and get to help them learn and experience, you know, watching them deal with failure and frustration. And it's cool that we got to kind of come together and made us closer. And we, you know, they were so excited that, you know, 
they got to do it with females. And it was, it was a really cool experience. So I hope to do that some more, whether it's with, you know, business world or, uh, ski world or climbing world, or, you know, just hanging out with women. Mm -hmm. It's always, it's always a pleasure. That's super cool. Do you find themes in the resistance from women who are interested in doing that stuff? I mean, like, what are you trying to battle when you talk to women and try to encourage them? Yeah, I am still kind of figuring that out. I, I've definitely listened to some of Shelma's podcasts. I, I've met her once at the Flashboxy Festival, like right when I got laid off. I actually had already scheduled my birthday to be at the Flashboxy Festival. Oh, and it fun. ended up being, yeah, it was kind of funny. I had literally just gotten laid off and um, all these women surrounded me and encouraged me to, you know, go forward and adventure. And um, But she something she says that I've been thinking about is kind of that women often are used to this kind of um, one female and hanging out with a lot of guys and proving that they can be that like, you know, cool girl that doesn't, isn't all like, you know, emotional or, um, you know, they can deal with the, you know, hanging with the guys. Yeah. I really resonated with that as well. Yeah, I definitely did and try to be careful and cause sometimes I can find more, competition between women and I want to more encourage women rather than make them feel alienated. And so that's something that I've kind of resonated with and want to, you know, point out in circumstances and then also in my own self and be more, um, open to, um, kind of ignoring that kind of societal, like, um, I guess, pressure or kind of how we were raised, you know, it's, it's kind of funky. Our <laughs> the w- women growing up is we, we have a lot of things that happen in our lives that make us who we are. <laughs> yeah. That, that was the one thing that resonated with me the most. And so I've been really conscious of it and careful, although sometimes it's, you know, you find yourself falling into that same trap. So sure. you have to be careful. Sure. <laughs> uh, traveling around so much. Do you have girlfriends? Yeah, I do. Uh, I am, I'm pretty good at keeping up with people. Uh, I have, uh, some good girlfriends in Denver still and, uh, some good girlfriends from traveling through like kind of the West and trad climbing world. Um, some friends who I had traveled with and they became climber stewards with me or were on a Yosemite search and rescue or just kind of one of my good friends in Yosemite is a climbing guide. Uh, she had been a steward the year before and had encouraged me to apply. And then she became a climbing guide. And in the other places, I've, you know, met some awesome women who I've climbed with as well. Um, so it's it's been cool to uh, see people around. I, I uh, as you travel, there are women who travel. And so it's pretty easy to climb with girls a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh I seek out those opportunities and I do climb with guys a lot too, but there is something special about climbing with girls and I make sure to make that happen a lot. Right. And how do you keep up with them when you're not right next to each other? Um, I keep up kind of through social media as well as um, randomly picking up the phone and calling them. Uh, it's, it can be difficult because everybody is doing their own thing and awesome oftentimes the places that I have enjoyed climbing have limited cell reception. And so if they are there, then we have to schedule a phone call or something and can be a little bit tough sometimes. Right. Or just showing up, you know, getting there and being like, hi, (laughs) 
we're still friends. <laughs> yeah. Do you train? I mean, I yeah. I mean, do you work out to be prepared for your trips, for skiing, that kind of stuff? I yes. Um, during this season, like when actual climbing in Yosemite, it's I had goals for myself to train, and I did some, but it's harder when there's all these amazing like moderate routes to climb and big walls you don't really gain a lot of fitness from doing them um, other than kind of just endurance and kind of perseverance but in the winters I do climb at a gym in Silverthorne which is pretty close to Breckenridge and there's a good group there that we train together this year my sister is also ski instructing with me so she she's more of like a horseback rider like eventing trainer Uh, she trains people on eventing kind of she was a young rider and so she's really good on like kind of the exercising and kind of more the personal training side of things. And I've been kind of showing her the climbing stuff. So I'm like, help me out. (laughs) Help me be a stronger climber. I'll help you be a climber. (laughs) Very good. It sounds like you came from a sporty family. Yeah, kind of. My brother is a runner and my sister is, does eventing. And um, my other sister is uh, used to do horseback riding, but now she is focused on kind of arts at music festivals and she's an interior designer. So we're all kind of on the artsy and somewhat outdoorsy side of things i think that's so funny there's so few art sporty types i'm an art sporty type yeah there's not very many of us i know it's kind of funny i i view that uh the outdoors are arts you know like climbing is kind of like dancing on the rock i grew up doing i wasn't the best ballerina but i did some ballet and i mostly did piano so I've, i've i've described climbing to people as um especially of sport climbing where you a lot of the moves are really difficult for you to do that it can be like a really difficult piano piece that you get and you have to like work out the each hand separately and then slowly get the hands to like you know play at the same time and then you eventually are able to play the whole piece all the way through and so it's kind of like rock climbing but maybe just a little different just using your whole body Mm -hmm. so interesting I think I migrated more towards like the uh sports side of things because I really loved getting outdoors and I had a few friends growing up and I wasn't always the most social I guess and I do enjoy kind of spending time alone I I am very extroverted when it comes to being around people who I know and but I have chosen to do activities that put me in those kind of collective environments you know rock climbing unless you do do a wall by yourself uh, oftentimes you find yourselves with partners and you develop really deep relationships with them quickly because you are, you know, climbing a route together. Right. What makes you good at adventures? Um, I work really hard. <laughs> I'm not always the most talented at anything I do, but I have a lot of determination to uh, figure things out. Cool. So one of the big topics I'd love to talk to you about is money because, you know, climbing is not cheap and you have to sort of set off for a long period of time. And yeah, I'd like to just talk about how you've managed that and any advice that you have. Yeah, it's been a big focus of mine. I'm really enjoy encouraging people to kind of think about their finances and not in an intimidating way, but just because I think it's important because I have worked really hard to kind of eliminate that fear of not having money because I have worked hard to save money and live cheap. Um, it kind of started when I was in Denver. Um, I had gotten into climbing and was dating somebody who 
uh, really wanted me to go on some, um, like he took me to Yosemite and I got back from the trip and was like, I'm not quite sure I can pay back for like renting this car and like all these things. Cause it was spur of the moment. And I was, um, not very organized at the time. I was really more enamored with going climbing rather than like making a decision that it wasn't the right timing to go because I, I had other expenses that had come up, I guess. And then from that point on, I got back into that mindset of um, delayed gratification, I guess, um, and had read some finance books. And I switched jobs at the time to work at a finance tech startup that was a savings app. I was a product manager working with software engineers to develop this finance app. And I got to spend a lot of my time thinking about features that would help people save money. And of course, it influenced me. I worked really hard while I was there to save money and become more financially savvy and responsible. As soon as I hit the road, that that company did go out of business. Um, I wanted to give myself the freedom to explore and not be worried about what I was going to do next because I was already fearful of not having a stable job. So I kind of gave myself permission to not be worried about the money. I luckily did have unemployment and I was a little bit unsure of accepting that, but it did help me kind of kickstart my, uh, I, I would say it kind of helped my kickstart my road to financial, uh, freedom or, you know, viewing that as an important thing. And then, uh, with ski instructing, I am not always the most fun person to hang out with. I just basically go, I work really hard and go to the climbing gym and occasionally go out, but I, don't usually buy very much and I don't often sign up for pro deals because they're tempting to buy things that you don't need at the moment or you don't need at all. And then, uh, I, uh, was able to come back with about 10 K for this season from savings from last year. And I lived off of only a few thousand dollars plus like some money I made from search and rescue, uh, a few, assignments I had been on and some reimbursement for food in Yosemite. And so, um, now I'm trying to, um, you know, that's not like a ton of money, but for my situation and how little I spend, it is like a pretty good amount of money for like an emergency, a large emergency fund. And then I can now build on top of that. It will help me kind of kickstart, you know, saving money for, um, whether it's a down payment for a rental property or, um, something else that I, uh, decide to do next year. My my main goal this season is a little less climbing focused, but a little bit more focused on kind of achieving steps to gain more financial independence as I get a little older. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was going to ask that. Do you have sort of long term visions of how you're going to afford to do what you want to do, or do you imagine sort of this big shift and all of a sudden you're going to be doing nine to five? I want to. Right now, I have that. You know. Uh, flexibility as being pretty much solo, uh, to live cheaply. And so I want to take advantage of that now rather than later to build some of that financial independence. So I don't have to go back to that or I can, you know, build up more of a freelance position. And honestly, ski instructing is if you gain certifications and build a business from private clients it it is actually pretty lucrative and really fun too Mm -hmm. (laughs) so uh i'm trying to 
train for higher certifications this year so I can gain, you know, more experience. I would like to avoid going back to a nine to five, but uh, if I ever do, you know, I would like to um, go about it smartly, not just like go into it with fear of not having money. I would like to, you know, make a decision that, oh, I would like to gain, you know, more financial freedom through this for a certain amount of time so I can, you know, go back and do more things. So did you have to sort of come to this place where you are with money or, or had you already been there? And if, if you did have to get there, do you remember sort of a point when that happened? It does help when you're in environments that are, have a lot of people who are living, uh, an alternate lifestyle of just like, uh, living, you know, where, where things that are a little bit more acceptable, like dumpster diving, I don't really do that very much, but, um, you know, that people, do things that are maybe people would be a little bit more embarrassed in the city to do that, you know, um, to live cheaper or like, you know, live in a smaller place because they want to be cheap. Uh, sometimes people are pressured in cities to live in the cool area with their friends and their friends go out to the bars and they spend money every night. And, you know, I made a conscious choice when I was in Denver to live with roommates and live in a cheaper a much cheaper place than I could afford. And also with people who I, they enjoyed outdoor, like free adventures rather than, um, going out. So I kind of surrounded myself with people who had similar values as me. And then same with being in the kind of more people who live on the road world. Um, it was really interesting when I was driving from Yosemite all the way to Kentucky, I stopped in Denver to visit my sister who lives there as an interior designer And I felt this immediate pressure just watching people on the streets walking to and from work or leaving their apartments in the morning. I kind of felt this energy of like, wow, I I don't fit in here and I should try to fit in, even though I knew I didn't really want to. And I felt kind of stressed like, oh, my goodness, I don't have a job or I don't, you know, I'm not buying the latest clothes or, you know weird stuff. And then I left and then I didn't feel like that anymore. And I realized how, you know, much pressure, like societal pressure there is just living in places that everybody's doing things the same way. And then if you do things differently, you, I mean, as humans, we really want to try to fit in. So it, it takes a conscious effort to live differently. And so I've made it easier on myself to not worry about it as much because I have chosen to live a little bit differently right now. And I don't want to live in my car forever. I would love to have a place that I call home eventually, but, um, it's, it's cool to see how you can gain that kind of financial clarity and not live in fear, uh, by doing something like what I'm doing, right. because, it, you know, I don't have that pressure as much anymore other than internal pressure for myself to, um, do things how I kind of envisioned them. And I wouldn't say that everybody is frugal people in cities live paycheck to paycheck but people on the road live seasonal job to seasonal job and it takes a conscious effort to kind of do things to not live from paycheck to paycheck or seasonal job to seasonal job so I've worked really hard to not fall into that trap as well and it sounds like if I understood your story correctly that your main advice is not to not to spend any money (laughs) like not to go out (laughs) (laughs) no I mean I think 
I do things that are, I do go out with people when I, you know, have, uh, you know, friends and I view them as kind of important times to like be with people, but you can kind of like, Hey, let's all make dinner together. Or, um, I, I definitely, <laughs> my friends make fun of me sometimes. They're like, Mary Grace, you need to like buy something for yourself. And I do buy things, but I just try to wait a little bit before I decide, because if you kind of look at like if you want to buy a new jacket or something because you need it but if you look and wait you know for like a few days or a week and really think about exactly what you need then you can hopefully not spend more than you need right right my story sort of like yours is every time i go to new york i wanted like a whole closet full of new shoes yeah (laughs) it's tempting yeah of course well thank you very much mary grace for being on the podcast and sharing your story it's been really great Thank you. I've enjoyed it. It's fun sharing. And I hope all these awesome women who listen to it can go off and have some fun adventures with their girlfriends. Yeah, me too. Definitely. Well, thank you. You're welcome. A big thank you to this week's guest, climber and all around super badass Mary Grace Stocker. Thanks to you for listening and generally supporting the show. I really appreciate your emails and suggestions. There are a whole ton of links in the show notes this week. So check that out on hearhersports.com. Sign up for the newsletter there. Also take a look at the shop for great hand-printed canvas totes and stickers. Hear Her Sports was started to increase media coverage of female athletes and women in sports. 44% of athletes are women, and only 4% of sports media coverage is about women. That's not a number, it's a rounding error. As women, we're all going to benefit from speaking way up, telling our stories, and listening to stories of incredible women like my sporty, adventurous guests. Subscribe to the Hear Her Sports newsletter, donate, or purchase new swag on hearhersports.com. Our theme music is by the band Goldmines, our logo by Agnes Studio. I'll be back in two weeks. Bye-bye. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo jo, Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network. <laughs>